Well, I'm really excited to uh, be sharing uh, the second in a series of these uh, conversations for change, as we've been calling them. Um, today, I'm going to be joined by uh, a friend, actually a member of staff at Liberty Church, Zoe Brown, a great man of God who has been uh, already for some time, uh, as well as a regular worship leader at our downtown Manhattan community. Zoe is also uh, the director of outreach across the church. Uh, so what each of our Liberty communities do to serve their neighborhoods. And then more recently uh, became also our director of missions. Uh, so kind of global outreach, I guess you could say. And uh, Zoe's doing an amazing job. And so I'm going to get him uh, to join us today. Hey, here you are. Zoe, good to see you, my friend. How you doing? <laughs> doing better. Better now. Um, yes, yes, good to be seen. <laughs> yeah, it sure is in the midst of quarantine, right? Um, so Zoe... Um, Maybe we could start out just because, um, you know, many people watching might not know as much about you. Give us a little bit of, you know, your, your background. I'd love because, you know, this this is a subject that's of um, great personal importance to you as we talk about race and injustice, um, the church. Um, we're going to get into it today, but give people a little bit of background on you and some of the stuff that you're doing professionally in this space right now. Right. So I, I started coming to Liberty in about 2015. And like Paul told you, I, you know, just served, you know, part of community groups and I've been in a worship team. And later on, I became part of the staff as director of outreach and most recently director of outreach and missions. And prior to that, my background educationally is in social work. So I went to Rutgers University and got my master's in social work. And I currently teach at Rutgers and a few other community colleges in New Jersey. And I teach social work, which I got my master's in. And I also have an undergrad in sociology and I teach sociology as well. And, and, and while we're talking about today, this is something that you, I mean, you lecture on this subject, right? Give me some yeah. examples. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have many conversations um, and I do a lot of work with my students around the topic of race and really um, the, the how how we got where we are and why we are where we are. And uh, I started doing a lot of this work with my sociology students and I teach them that race is a, a social construct. You know, most of us are taught that race is like, oh, well, we're, we're different. You know what I mean? If you have different skin or, or different hair or something like that. But, you know, there are um, inconsistencies when it comes to that. And when you look at race, we are all one human race. We look the way we look based on where we were in the world and climate and how we adapted um, to survive in the different climates. And of course that resulted in different skin tones and hair textures and body shapes and different things of that nature. And that's why we are why we are. But the race, how we use it actually is very politicized and race actually singles out people as being inferior or superior based off of real or alleged characteristics such as hair texture, uh, skin color, and things of that nature. So um, that's how it's really used. It's really, um, I think another word would be a brand. <laughs> it's a brand that we all wear. And you know, for some people, the brand comes with a lot of value. And, uh, you know, and for others, the brand um, is not as valuable. This is, okay, it's really, this is interesting for me. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about, maybe you can just give us a little bit of a snapshot of some of the history of 
uh, race in the US, especially, obviously, you know, I mean, those who don't know me, uh, I was born in Australia. I've lived in the US. I'm a US citizen now, but I've only lived here these last 10 years. Um, right now, not only across the US, but across the world, I mean, um, in response to even only recently, um, Ahmad Arbery, um, George Floyd, um, there's a outrage, uh, a righteous anger around the, um, the deaths of uh, black men and women. Um, talk to me, I mean, I think on the one hand you can say, and maybe, I mean, I don't know what you think, but I mean, I think, I think it's probably fair to say that globally, I mean, racism is a pandemic, you know, if we could use that word, and it is everywhere and you experience whatever, whatever race you might identify with, you can experience racism, but there's something specific in the history of relationships between the white and black community in America that, that I think is a particular type of pain. Could you speak a little bit to that? Because I think sometimes in times like these, I've heard people maybe well-meaning or maybe ignorant or whatever, say things that might be true, but are ultimately super unhelpful right now, like all lives matter and things like that. Um, talk to me about what, you know, the history of like in a nutshell. Um, right. So, so um, one, uh, I'm going to talk to you about the history, but I do want to address something that you said when you said all lives matter. Um, right. And really, um, when somebody has attention brought to them for a specific injustice or issue, um, you don't want to counter that um, ever, right? You know, I have cancer, you know, breast cancer survivors, right? You know, but wait a second, you know, um, what about people with pancreatic cancer? Or what about people who have heart attacks? Or what about people who have any other disease, right? You know, the point of you focusing on that particular person or group is because attention needs to be brought to that because there is a problem. Um, so usually the Black Lives Matter statement is countered with something, but you don't really hear other counters when somebody brings attention to something else. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do want to bring attention to that. And the reason for that is because of the negative history that we have um, with race in this country. Of course, we all know that slavery is something that was a big part of the reason why the United States is as successful as it is because of the free labor uh, people. You know, if you take people and you don't, you don't pay them, um, of course, you are going, to, that's going to be profitable for you. So. Um, slavery comes in different forms. It's called human trafficking, uh, you know, whatever you call it. But after slavery was abolished, I think there's this notion like everything is okay, right? But legally, it was literally um, a crime to be a person who was branded black. It was like literally against the law for people who are black to use the same facilities as people who are labeled white. It was black to marry someone who was white. We actually highlighted some of these um, issues in uh, Moments for Justice during our Black History Month special um, at Liberty Downtown. And that's the history. Um, the history is that we were not even believed to be human. It was, we were three-fifths human. If you were a black person, you were considered three-fifths human. So it brings in this conversation of cognitive dissonance. I know we talked about this before, this, mm. uh, this subject of cognitive dissonance. And the thing about it is that I think humans 
at the end of the day, if you are, have a society, you want peace and you want to be good people and you want to have a good society that functions well, right? You want a nice, functional, peaceful society ultimately. But having people um, as slaves, human beings, doesn't make you really feel too good. It's like, wow, this, this is wrong. Um, but I'm doing it anyway. That's what cognitive dissonance or attitudes about something. And another, a, a concrete example of that is, hey, um, I smoke cigarettes, but I know that cigarettes cause cancer. So in order for me to reduce my cognitive dissonance, I'll say, you know what? The research on cancer um, being caused by cigarettes is inconclusive, right? You know. So the way you reduce your cognitive dissonance about feeling bad for trafficking humans, you say, well, you know what? They're actually not human. And let's actually embed that in science and then spread that information and promote that information. So now that it's widely believed by everyone, and now people are raised to just look at black people as something that's degrading and less than human. And those attitudes pervade it, it basically pervades society, whether the laws have been changed or not. So, Zoe, just go back for a second. You mentioned three-fifths human, and that was something I only learned about in, in the last few years, that at one time that was, I mean, literally written into the law. Can you unpack that just a second? Yeah, so it was embedded in law that Black people were three-fifths human, right? meaning not fully, not fully human. So, therefore, the rights that apply to citizens of America didn't actually apply to them because it wasn't written for them. It was written for people who were considered human, um, which would be white people. Um, mm -hmm. So it wasn't written for um, people who are black because they weren't considered human. And this was embedded in law. It's astounding, isn't it, to look back? <laughs> and, and I think what I find so challenging about this, though, is all at once, even as I say that, it's like the cognitive dissonance that we live with today. And that's why I think sometimes in these conversations, you know, people will push back on, well, I mean, haven't we, then we don't have slavery anymore. Haven't we come a long way, right? You and sure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Slavery is, um, you know, let's just talk about business. Um, it's profitable. And why would somebody stop doing something that has been profitable for so long. What you do is uh, you kind of change it up. You know, you change the laws, but you still meet your bottom line in some other way. So whether it's um, through mass incarceration, right, um, over -criminaliz criminalization of black people, um, trumping up charges, even after slavery was abolished, there was something that was embedded. And this, way, um, this was in the 50s. Um, and probably even lasted even longer than that. I'm not really sure of the dates, but it was something called peonage law. So a black person could get arrested and get charged for doing um, something minor like spitting or talking loudly in public. And you could charge a black person for this crime and that black person would become your slave. And in a lot of ways, the peonage system was a lot worse than slavery because slavery masters had interest in keeping their um, slaves healthy so they could work. The peonage, you could literally work a person, a human being to death and you can, and, and you can get another one because now slavery is illegal. And so there was no, uh, interest in, you know, doing that. 
So in a lot of ways, it, it, it was a lot worse. And we still see a lot of these things happening today in the mass incarceration system uh, because there's labor that goes on as well. And then, you know, even if we talk about human trafficking um, of women and children, uh, you know, that's also a part, you know, of slavery. It's, it's the, a stratification system. So basically, this people in society believe that some people are just not worthy or valuable. So mm -hmm. they are expendable. And if you um, can exploit them, do it. Yeah. So, so, I mean, when you, I can imagine for you as a college professor speaking on these sorts of subjects, you know, um, diversity, uh, injustice, race and privilege. Talk to me about, talk to me about the conversations you have with your students. Cause I imagine you have conversations on all different sides of this, especially in times like these, where yeah. I imagine some people are expressing pain to you saying, help me understand how to navigate this. And I can't imagine what those conversations are like. And then some people are, I mean, probably pushing back on a lot of these conversations, or at least it's foreign or disorienting. I don't know. So I remember you told me one time, like some of the exercises you do with the students, I mean, go where you want with this, but I think it'd be helpful. Like, how do you help people? Right. Find their way into this on a personal level, not just on a historical, this happened, that act was passed, but you know, here and now, me, my blind spots, uh, to what degree am I perpetuating injustice? Like, how do you help people walk with that? Right, you know, history is one thing, but you know, I, I like to include a different, um, you know, type, you know, various types of learning modalities in my classroom, you know, so not just lecturing or you know, videos, but I do different things. So I do um, a lot of exercises and I do uh, the work that makes people feel uncomfortable. But, you know, that's what college and, you know, becoming educated is all about is, you know, getting out of your comfort zone. So, you know, there's an exercise that I do. I teach a class called Diversity and Oppression. And it's at Rutgers University. And this specifically, um, it's a, all my students are social work students. So, you know, I have to say pretty much all of them are open. <laughs> You know, um, it's under the social work guys, so they're, they're there to help people. So they're open. Uh, and, you know, the majority of my students are white. And one of the first exercises I do is an exercise called crossing the lines. So they'll come to class and they're ready to sit down and learn and, you know, hear my spiel. And I say, all right, everybody, you know, leave your stuff at your desk. We're going to go outside for a little exercise. And they're like, uh, okay. So they follow me, of course, you know. And I take them outside in the field and I tell everyone to line up in one nice long line, you know, side by side. And they do it. And, and I say, you know, when I ask you certain questions, you will either take two steps forward, one step forward, or two steps back, or one step back, depending on what I say. So I'll ask, you know, if you are a man, take two steps forward. You know, if you have, uh, if you were raised with both of your parents, you know, take two steps forward, you know. If you were raised in a house, you know, right, and, I, and then I'll start asking questions like, you know, if you're a female, you know, take a step back, you know, or if you have student loans. So it's not all about race. I'll ask some things, like, you know, things related to class, which, you know, these things intersect. And so whenever I finish the exercise, usually if I have um, white men in my class, they're up at the front. And, you know, people, and you, you usually have uh, females um, of color. In the back, and then of course you have exceptions to the rule. You have people all over the spectrum, but you know people are looking at each other. And then I say, all right, stop. You know how do you feel? And then you know you have people who are friends who took this class together. 
you're up there and I'm back here. And that's not fair because, you know, I, I, I'm here just like you and I deserve every, you know, opportunity just like you do. And then after that, and that part is very disconnecting for them. And I do it because I want them to feel disconnected. I want them to feel that and how it feels to see somebody up here just based on the color of their skin, that they get better life chances. You know, so if, and, and that's just what it is. If you are a white person in this world, you get better life chances as compared to uh, people who aren't white. And so after that disconnecting part is finished, I have them gather in a circle. So bring back the connection. And I call that a cypher. We use that in hip hop where we freestyle and we get in a circle and we, we face each other. And so we get in a circle and then I say, now let's have a conversation. How do we feel? Let's talk. And that brings people back together, that connection, that circle. And then we get into class and then we do some more work and go through introductions. And then there's another exercise I do with them. Um, and, and I totally blindside them with this stuff, I have to admit. <laughs> but it's, it's done intentionally, though. So they come into class and I say, all right, everybody, um, if you are white or Caucasian or if you identify that as that, get in the middle of the class and get in the middle of the circle. We're going to talk about whiteness and white privilege. And they're like, what? <laughs> you know, um, they're usually just totally floored. And then some of them are like, okay, I don't know what we're doing, but I'm into it. You know, I'm ready to see, I like, I'm ready to see what we're going to do. Because people are there because they want to do the work. And I just start asking questions. Um, give me some aspect of white culture. And it's usually crickets in the room first. Like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> You know, they're very uncomfortable. And then, I, of course, I poke them a little bit. And and we get some silly things like um, Starbucks, Ugg, Ugg, Ugg boots, <laughs> you know, and then everybody laughs. That comes up in every class. I, Paul, I promise you, it comes up in every class. But then um, somebody says something difficult, like, oh, well, being able to go to college um, easily and not having student loans or, um, you know, financial finances, or whatever, then people start naming things. And then people say, you know what, Professor Zoe, um, I have never talked about this ever. So I don't know what to say. I don't talk about white culture. What I don't even know what that is. You know, we don't have these conversations at the table. Um, so this is hard for me um, mm -hmm. to talk, the, the participate in, but, you know, not in a resistant way, but just in a truthful and honest way. And then, you know, the next day I say, okay, if you're black, coming in the middle of the circle and conversation starts popping because black people are grown up. We grow up talking about blackness. We grow up having these conversations. Um, one thing I, I didn't tell you is that when I was a toddler, um, I, I, maybe I remember it a little bit, but I actually thought I was white. Uh, and my grandmother remembers it very well. You know, she said, you thought you were white and you would say that you were white and that, you know, I was brown and if somebody was dark, you would say that they're black. So I was kind of going off of colors. And I'm wondering like, what would make me think that, you know, um, but I am, my skin tone is lighter than, you know, um, a few people in my family. And we do have spectrum of skin tones. And, but also I'm going by what I'm seeing on TV and, you know, identifying myself with that. Um, but once I learned that I was not, and then I learned the history of what it was to be black and the history of where we came from. Um, I remember, you know, in the fourth grade, I actually became like a little militant. You know, I was very embracing of African culture and, you know, uh, 
and having this knowledge and knowing where we came from and how we had to pretty much fight for our freedom. So it became a part of my identity. I've had conversations when with my police officer because it's not if it happens, it's when it happens because it's going to happen. And of course it has happened several times, many times. Um, and you know, I've had to have, we have to have conversation with our sons, especially our sons and our daughters, because you see women are getting shot and beat up and brutalized. If you watch any of the stuff on the media, I mean, sometimes I have to tune out from it, but we have conversations with our children on how to conduct yourself because we're taught that to you and to the police officers, they were put in place to keep you in line. I mean, you have all these free slaves now running wild. We have to have a system to manage this, right? Um, so we're, we're taught that you're not valued by society and you have to be careful because you could get hurt or worse, be killed. Mm. So Zoe, talk to me. I mean, you covered so much good stuff there. Um, I mean, part of what I'm hearing you say when you talk about just the, the idea of privilege is an important one. Or even, even the fact that it's like the kind of the white kids in the class, like, I don't know, we didn't really grow up talking about White, what, it, what it means to be white wasn't a conversation. Right. I know it wasn't a conversation in my house in suburban Australia. It's like, I don't know. Um, but part of that is tied to this idea of privilege because, you know, I mean, it's a lot of it has to do with the way that society is designed or who, who disproportionately holds places of power and authority, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when I first, I mean, true confessions though, because this is, this is all about learning, right? I come to these yeah. conversations, I am definitely not an expert, but I am a pretty eager learner. So I'm having all these conversations, hoping that if no one else, they help me, right? But I, I think in helping me, maybe they help other people, but true confessions, you know, when I first heard white privilege, the term was only a few years ago. And I remember thinking, that it didn't sound like me. I was like, in my mind, white privilege was a certain type of white person, like that had like a trust fund or like, you know what I mean? They were like, had maybe a country club membership or something. Right. So I was like, oh, white privilege isn't me, right? Because my parents worked really hard, right? You probably hear all these same pushbacks. Yeah. Right? Well, like, what do you mean? My, I didn't, my, my family like had to work for everything that we got. So um, I think what, what you're getting to here, maybe you can unpack it just a little bit more, is that privilege is a lot more subtle than that. Yeah, it's, it's a lot more subtle. It's being able to exist in a world where you're automatically trusted, hmm. where you're automatically valued, where you're automatically revered. Um, now, this is not to say that white people don't have competition with other white people, right? You know, meaning... If you're applying for a job and there's just a whole bunch of white people applying, then it's competitive, you know? So you, so meaning you don't feel bad, right? But part of what I teach my students is using something called the sociological imagination and really not looking at the world from your own perspective, but looking at the world from multiple perspectives, hmm. right? So, um, if I was to ask a question in a room full of white people, um, would you want to be black? And this has been asked. Um, a, a woman named Jane Elliott, I'm not sure if you heard of her. You remember the name though, Jane Elliott. She's a white woman. Um, she has been doing this work for many years with students and she's very inspirational to me. She's been on Oprah years ago. You can YouTube her. I mean, she's the real deal. Um, she, 
I, mean, I haven't made anybody. Well, I, she makes people cry. <laughs> she's she's a lot tougher than me. You know, Jane is no joke. She's she's very tough. She'll ask the question. Um, you know, what would any of you want to be black or have like have a lifestyle traded with a black person? And nobody raises their hand. And she said, that lets me know very clearly that you know what's going on. And why you're okay with it, I don't know, right? If you're not okay with it for you, why are you okay with it for someone else? Mm. And that's white privilege. Wow. And these conversations um, can be hurtful when you actually start doing the work, when you start addressing it, when you start realizing that, wait a second, like this whole time, like I haven't really taken a, taken in that specific perspective, what it means to be branded black, you know, how that will affect my life, how that will affect my life chances, even small things. Let's not even talk about getting loans or being in a school system where you have like, like a great education. You know, let's not even talk about that. Let's talk about not even like going into the store and nobody's even following you. All right. Um, yeah. We actually have foundations set up to fight against this because um, that's the only way that you can control it. Um, one of these organizations is the Fair Housing Justice because there, because racism exists systematically, um, black people aren't able to get homes in certain areas. So Fair Housing Justice hires actors <laughs> and they hire actors to go in there. They hire actors of all races. So they'll, they hire the, um, the guy I met with him when I first started working for Liberty, and he explained exactly what they do. And he said, um, we hired an actress, she was a black woman and I was an actor, and we had the same credentials, and her credentials were actually a little bit better than mine, right? She had a little bit more money than me, and but when she went to go look at the home, she was told that it wasn't available. When I went to go look at the home, not only was I told that it was available, but I was able to, um, I, you know, I pretended as though I wasn't interested. And I said, you know, what? I got to talk to my wife about it. She said, okay, I don't usually do this, but I'll leave the door unlocked. So just get your wife whenever you're ready. And you can just and look at it because I really want you to have this home. This is just after she told somebody that mm -hmm. was a black woman that is not available. Gotcha. Now, of course, this woman was fired, but this is the way that you discover racism because it's systematically ingrained and nobody's wearing a sign that says I'm racist you know you know you, you, know, you can pretend that you're not um, you know because that's not a, a good image especially if you're a business person so um, you actually have we actually have to set up foundations to unearth and expose um, some yeah. of the systematic racism that exists yeah and I think that's the, the challenge of it is oftentimes the people that the system is biased to support, it, it's most invisible to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an imperfect analogy, but I was thinking, as you said that then, I was reminded, I haven't thought of this in weeks, but my, my kids are kind of into Minecraft and they hosted a youth night for the church where my kids like built a map, but the map had all like hidden treasure, it had all these hidden traps too, and then all the other kids were gonna come in and play. But I sort of asked the question of my kids, like, did you make the game fair, though? Because they're like, it's going to be so fun. I was like, but is it? If you're the kids on the other team, you don't know where the gold is. You don't know where the traps are. It's kind of, to me, there's something about that's an, an analogy for the society that we're in right now. It's, it's been designed with, like, hidden downsides and hidden upsides. And some of that, you know, 
if we if we're not careful, this is not a level playing field at all. There are there are clearly advantaged and clearly disadvantaged people, but oftentimes to the advantaged people, it's it's not you know they wouldn't see it in their self interest to admit this is kind of rigged. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And you know, one of my students did a presentation recently, and the presentation talked about how um, like race, class, um, gender. Um, and these, you know, uh, age as well, you know, how these things are all connected and um, they have to discuss it in a presentation. And she talked about, a lot of them talked about COVID-19 and she basically talked about how that exposed um, the systems, like how bad the system was. One, it showed how um, certain people in the communities, black people were disproportionately um, affected by that. Um, but she even brought up something about the disabled community. She said, and one day, all of these companies that had people come in work and they discriminated against disabled people, and one day they pivoted to an online system, right? Meaning, you know, making, basically exposing that all this discrimination against people who are disabled or maybe can't walk could still work and be productive because we're still all productive. We've been all working remotely. <laughs> See, you see how the coronavirus even exposes, you know, things of that nature. So um, it's, although coronavirus, I mean, this is the worst thing that either one of us have seen when it comes to disease, but it's exposed a lot of things, a lot of blind spots that may have existed for some of us as well. So um, it, there are blessings um, to this era that we're in. Well, yeah, my hope certainly is that we're going to, learn and not just learn i mean ultimately as a result of learning that's why we call these conversations for change it's like hopefully in the learning in the compassion in the leaning in is we're gonna because you know the bible says guard your heart with all diligence out of it flow all the issues of life i mean what we're really talking about even as we talk about systemic things those ultimately flow from the cumulative effect of things going on in the human heart um i think all at once i'm like passionate about us seeing change in our day for the for the sake of our kids and our grandkids for the you know leave the world better than we found it and also sort of trying to personalize this journey though as well you know where it's not only abstract and and out there but it's personal and uncomfortable in in here like you know maybe 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 here's a spot you wanted to say something what did you want to say but, but something different is happening that i've seen and that you've seen is that um a lot of white people are becoming involved in this uh, Black Lives Matter movement like never before. Mm -hmm. um, technology has made it possible um, for us to see, see things that happen in real life and share them as well. And, you know, so that, that's really powerful for me. You know, when I see a line of white women lining up to um, protect black protesters, because these white women realize that they have privilege in you're not gonna shoot us with rubber bullets or mace us in the face, right? You know, you would do it to them and we recognize you would do it to them because we recognize that you don't think that black people matter, right? You know, when I see white women holding up signs that every mother was summoned when George Floyd cried out for his mother, who's been dead, right? You know, so this is speaking to mothers. This is, you know, so many um, young people are involved in this, involved in protests. Children, and, I didn't, and I'm not talking about 20s, I'm talking about children um, being involved in this. So this is something, this outcry is extremely visible and we are totally naked and exposed. 
Hmm. And there's no way around it now. And so many conversations, usually I've seen white people avoid these conversations or even, um, you know, try to fight up against them or deny white people. But now I see so many, like I just had a conversation. I did a podcast when we talked about white privilege. And um, one of my members in the community, Jacob, said that white privilege is a blood diamond, right? And it's something that we have to give up. He says, you know, I have a lot of conscious white friends and, you know, a lot of them say, oh, well, we make sure that we don't wear real fur or if our diamonds aren't, you know, there's no blood on them. You know, they would got in an ethical way. Um, but he said, our privilege is a blood diamond. We need to acknowledge it and we need to give it up. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a huge insight, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe, maybe where we could land, though, in the couple of minutes that we got left is just because we're talking, we're talking big and we're talking, you know, right here. Yeah. You know, you, you shared with me uh, earlier, just a real brief little snippet mm -hmm. of a difficult encounter you had with a restaurant actually here in New York. And it not only all at once, it spoke to the fact that it's like, Hey, I mean, cause there's a whole spectrum, right. Of just prejudice and a bias, a blind spots, but then like flat out racism too. Mm -hmm. uh, and you experience like straight, straight racism, but your response I thought was really like instructive to mm -hmm. be thinking about. And, and I'd like to say too, I mean, tell the story, like give us a little snapshot, but yeah. I, I would like to think that stories like these are things that can be acted on not only by people of color who are in a sense having those, that, that bias perpetrated against them, but also that, white people when they see it or you know people of any color i mean let's face it this we are all able to stand together in this it shouldn't always fall on people of color to have to speak up for themselves and point out injustice for themselves i mean they have every right to do so but everybody else has the responsibility to do so also but just mm -hmm. maybe if you could in these last couple of minutes just share that story and what you did because i think it's a picture of the change to come right you know it, it's really important that we are not afraid to have these conversations and when I say conversation, I mean a conversation, meaning sometimes you have to uh, put on a teaching, uh, you know, you have to teach people and, you know, and if they're open to learn as well. And, and you want you have to be strong and fearless, but yet you have to have grace and mercy as well. So, um, you know, when I first joined Liberty, um, I went to, so this was in 2015, that's why I'm naming the date. Um, I went to a restaurant in Far Rockaway, Queens, and it's like a beachy type of area. And um, I was told by my friend that this restaurant was a racist restaurant. And I'm like, she said, this is a racist side of town. I'm like, okay, you know, like, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't buy it. I'm like, we're not in like Alabama or something. <laughs> you know, we're, we're in New York. Like, okay, I, I know there are racist people, but I just kind of scoffed at it. I didn't think that it would manifest to anything. I'm going to go in a restaurant and eat like I've been doing my whole life. And um, so we went into the restaurant and I was dressed and I'll tell you how I was dressed. Um, it was in a very sporty look out of Chicago Bulls, uh, you know, tank top jersey with a matching fitted. And, you know, um, what people say, very urban, you know, not like just like a little plain shirt like this, <laughs> um, it, you know, and so when I went in there as a bouncer, uh, he pretty much said, are you sure you want to go in there? And I'm like, uh, yeah, why? He said, well, you know, I don't want you to go in there. Um, if you go in there, I want you to have a good time. And I'm asking, like, what are you getting at? What are you talking about? 
and he proceeds to tell me that his manager is racist and his manager is going to um, pretty much assume that I look like, and he said, a racial slur, the N-word. And he said, that's what he's going to think you look like. And he's going to have me approach you and ask you to leave. And he said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to embarrass you, and I don't want you to have that experience. But I'm telling you this because he's racist, and I'm going to leave this job. And so, my, you know, I, both our mouths are like, are we having this, like, are we really having this conversation right now? And he said, and I'm so sorry that you're even going through this because I can tell that you're a gentleman. He said, but he's going to look at the way you're dressed and he's going to profile. And I didn't believe him. I said, you know, this is not real. So the sociologist to me, I said, um, I would like to go into the restaurant. I want to see what this restaurant is like. And um, I, I took off my hat, you know, um, and I put on a hoodie and I covered up. I said, but this makes me uh, you know, less you know, likely to be approached. And he said, yeah, because I did look in a restaurant and there were black people in there. And most people were dressed in like shorts, flip-flops or whatever. And so I went in a restaurant and there was a, a big group of uh, Irish guys out of a big Irish community. And they were loud and drinking and, you know, they were just having a good time. But they were loud and drinking and, and you know, obnoxious. But they were allowed to be that way. I wasn't even allowed to look a certain way, let alone hmm. have a good time with my friends Right. if I wanted to so I lost my appetite you know by just being in this environment and um but I reacted in a way that um actually some of my white female friends taught me which is to go on Yelp and complain and <laughs> I said okay let's do it and I, I wrote a nice um Yelp review and I labeled it racist restaurant and the manager of that restaurant called me in and um, I went into the restaurant and he had drinks and food for us. And we had a conversation, a difficult conversation that slowly but sure, surely the layers began to unfold. And he said that this is a racist part of town and I was raised that way. My father was racist and our town was so racist that we would have floats that made fun of different races um, mm -hmm. every year. You know, it would be a parade. So we would make fun of black people, Asian people, this, that, the third. And we would have these floats to make fun of and that, So that's how racist this town was, that it pervaded, that this was allowed to happen. And he said that there were other people that wrote um, that his restaurant was racist. But I was, he asked him to come in to talk, but I was the first one that actually came in to talk to him. Mm. And, you know, I, I think his bottom line was about business because he said, I'm a businessman and I, I want everybody to come in my restaurant and to be able to feel welcome. But I did he did admit that there were um, some um, black people that were dressed urban and he had a problem with them and he admitted to profiling uh, people. He admitted to it. He said he wished to bounce it and say it like he did, but um, he didn't deny that it wasn't true. And um, so all I'm saying is that if you have to have these conversations, I'm not sure if I changed him, but you know, um, something like that could shut you down you know, um, as a restaurant, not only, you know, will black people to stop patronizing you, but there's a lot of white people that won't patronize with you either because they don't want to be associated with that. We have white people that have black people not only in their family or at their job, but they're married. They have children that are black. They have um, relatives that are black. They work with people that are black. So they're not standing for anybody um, mm -hmm. discriminating against people who are black because, you know, these are people that are loved and valued. So not only do black lives matter, but black lives are valuable 
black lives. Um, so matter is just like the minimum, you know, but black lives are love, you know, um, and so that's the message needs to be spread um, out, you know, through it. because right now um, there, there, there has always been a problem and that's why the attention is to it. And not to say that other lives don't matter. I mean, I think it's been evident that white lives have mattered for a, a, a quite some time now. So, I love that that this the example. I can't. I mean, I all at once it like breaks my heart that you even had to number one have that experience. Number two, write that review, and then I can't imagine how hard it was to go in for that conversation. Because, uh, like, I mean, if it was me, if I'd had any kind of experience like that, I'm like, I don't want that. I don't want to give that person the time of day. It doesn't matter. And wine and dine me which is you know what i mean like he's putting on some free food now but it's like man i always made it clear i wasn't welcome so i think i mean i just think it yeah. shows character and your courage but yeah, i get I why mean, i get why he'd reached out to others and they never came you know why you know what i mean i needed to school him i needed to teach him um how he needs to be i needed to show him and expose him um and i allowed him to do most of the talking in the beginning he was very nervous and he was stumbling over his words yeah. But because that's because she knew he was going to eventually tell me the truth yeah. that he wants to change. And he wants so to change. So hopefully that seed has, um, you know, grew, something has grown in him to make him change. Because racist, it, some people struggle with racism. It goes deep. It goes very deep. You know, it's like struggling with something else in an in addiction. Um, and it goes very deep. So um, some people... Um, may get delivered from it because they have a, 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 a grandchild that's black. And now, you know, and some people still struggle with it. They can't even love their own family yeah. because of this. So, Well, I love that you connected those two things there together at the end, you know, conversations and change. That's what this whole series is really about, you know, um, hard conversations like the one that you had and even just asking questions. I'm grateful I have you being one of the many people in my world that I can ask the quote unquote dumb questions of like, help me understand this. Or, Cause I don't think it's, look, it's not, it doesn't make you racist to, to not understand things. Um, but I understand why people are nervous to ask questions or to say something wrong or to get it wrong. But it's like, we can't allow, you know, I, I'm passionate about this. We can't allow our fear of doing or saying the wrong thing to keep us from leaning in right now or looking stupid, which is honestly a lot of the times what it really is human nature. We just don't want to, admit mm -hmm. I didn't know I don't understand I've never had that experience and therefore it's easier to dismiss your experience because it's not shared you know by me but yeah. I do think though like those kind of conversations and you know there are going to be people who aren't going to want to change but you know for every guy like whoever that restaurant owner is who says I want to change I mean I pray I pray that you know mm -hmm. across millions of hearts I mean that that could change the future you know one life at a time one conversation at a time i think it's so easy to just wish for um i mean yes legislation's important yes who we elect matters yes all of these things and then at, and i amen to all of that i'm not disregarding that and yet i think maybe the tension i feel a lot right now though is just the importance of not getting away from one heart one life who's in my circle who's at Who's at the table? Whose table is it? That's another whole conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want, man, if we could just close by having you pray for us. Because, you I mean, you've been dropping gold. And I love your heart. I'm grateful for your leadership in these conversations. Maybe just, you know, pray for, pray for that same desire to change. I don't know. Whatever you want to pray. Absolutely. 
Lord, we thank you so much um, just for allowing us to have the grace and ability to receive um, any type of criticism that may be against our character, God. You know, I think ultimately we all want to be seen as blameless in your sight, God. And so, um, Lord, I ask just for a spirit of repentance, um, just not only in America, but just worldwide, God. Ultimately, you know, this needs to be something that brings people back to you. Because Jesus, you, um, you didn't teach us to be this way. Your teachings um, are about love and justice and mercy and faith and acceptance and, and you know, not judging one another. And Lord, I, I ask that, you know, you just bring us, simply bring us back to you, bring us back to your way. Help us to learn to walk in your ways, God, and help us to identify anything that we can do specifically because we understand that racism is just a feeling. It's something that's implemented into the system. So I ask that you not only speak to the people who are being oppressed, but speak to the people who have been a part of the oppression and speak to their hearts um, like you're doing now, God. I see, I see it now. We can all see it, Lord. And we thank you for that. We thank you for this move that is causing people to look at their hearts, to look at how they have participated in this. And it may be painful. It may tug at people's egos. But we still have to do it anyway, God, because Lord, ultimately that is walking in your way. That is following in your footsteps, Jesus. We want to be more like you. You are an example that we have um, for perfection. We will never be perfect, God, but we can continue to look at your examples and serve you. And I ask, um, you know, I, I ask you forgive, to forgive um, anyone who has participated in this, but please bring them to a place of repentance. Um, and have let them understand that letting go of this idea of white privilege um, and embracing equality is not going to hurt society. It's only going to help society and ultimately help us to function better. And we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm so grateful for you, man. You're um, you're a you're a hero, you're an example, and um, I so appreciate your spirit, your wisdom, um, and uh, I know you helped me. I'm praying to help a lot of people through this conversation. So thanks, man, for taking the time. And, That's uh, what I'm here for. Yeah, man. Yeah. Grateful for you. Thanks, Zoe. Amen. Thank you.